You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. The European Union is one of the most important and least understood organizations out there. It's a collection of institutions, including an established administration with many of the authorities of a national government. It's a treaty-based organization with a Supreme Court, the European Court of Justice. But it's also a coordination mechanism for the leaders of 27 countries, used to be 28 until Brexit, who exert their national power and diplomacy to shape Europe's response to internal and external challenges. We see this, of course, in the response to the pandemic, uh, and in particular through the uh, financial and fiscal engagement of the European Union. And it's also a constantly evolving phenomenon, which over time it's gained new powers um, in reaction to crises, especially. Now, in my experience as a career diplomat, it is both a valuable ally for the United States and at times a frustrating partner because of diffuse power centers and 27 members with different interests. But for many in the United States and elsewhere, it's also a green screen onto which you can project your preconceptions about how the world works. If you favor international collaboration, you see the European Union as in some ways an ideal, a post-national experiment and maybe even a beacon for mutual prosperity and political solidarity. But if you're skeptical about the constraints on national action, the EU could be the apotheosis of globalism that thwarts national sovereignty and democracy. So our guest today on The Zeitgeist is someone who knows the European Union like few Americans do. Tony Gardner was the US ambassador to the EU from 2014 to 2017 and had a 20 year career as an international lawyer and a US policymaker that prepared him for that job. So we're delighted to have him here as a guest to talk about the European Union. And from our perspective, focusing on Germany and German-American relations, uh, we look forward especially to talking about the role that EU member states and Germany in particular um, play as part of this big, complicated, but in my view, productive and valuable transatlantic relationship. So Ambassador Gardner, thanks so much for being with us. Well, it's great to be with you. Um, and if, if we could start off, um, you know, one of the things that everybody's talking about these days is China. Um, and I think a lot of people in the United States are looking for ways to, uh, to leverage and organize American cooperation with our um, friends and allies and partners in Europe um, to, to deal with the many challenges associated with China. Uh, these days. Uh, what's your view on, uh, on the China challenge, um, especially uh, uh, in an EU context? Um, and does that highlight some of the strengths, but also the shortcomings of, of the EU as a partner for the United States? Hmm. Uh, that's an interesting question. First of all, I want to thank you, Jeff, and, and Peter Rash is an old friend and everything that um, the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies does, uh, particularly at this time where we really need uh, institutions like yours to explain uh, not only what Germany does, but Europe does in the European Union. And as you say, the European Union is not an easy organization to understand. 
uh, and particularly, you know, explaining that to uh, an American audience was tough. Your, your question is exactly where I wanted to start off, frankly, because um, if I had to list all the areas where I think Trump's policy to Europe is profoundly misguided, it's the idea that the EU um, can't bring anything to the table on what arguably is our biggest challenge, and that is dealing with China. And I say that because the EU actually is an essential partner in many ways, but particularly in this one, because of the size of its single market, it does have a lot of influence. In that sense, it really is a, a global superpower, also in the regulatory field. And the idea that we shouldn't be sitting down with our closest partner, an influential partner like the European Union, to, um, to, to restructure the WTO and to force China to the table and to make meaningful changes uh, and opening its market um, is, is something I fail to understand. Um, it's, it shows a misunderstanding of the EU, Jeff, because, uh, uh, you know, in, in some areas one can argue the EU has not been sufficiently effective, but you know, the EU has actually been moving more to the U.S. point of view on a lot of these economic challenges we have, you know, on subsidies, foreign direct investment, competition law, you know, the, the list goes on. So we should be sitting down with them more. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, well, it's not, I was about to say it's a paradox, but it's not really a paradox. Uh, and that is for an administration that, um, that on the one hand, um, you know, is, expresses exasperation with, with Europe at times. But at the same time, when you look at the specific things they want to achieve with regard to China, uh, the only real way uh, to do that is through um, a strengthening of the European Union's role in certain key areas, um, whether that is investment screening, um, you've mentioned uh, WTO and, and trade policy. Uh, you know, in all of those areas, um, you know, Europe, if it acts together, is potentially a much more powerful friend um, to, to the United States. Um, and, and so that is, uh, I think, uh, one of the ironies um, uh, it, when you look at the objectives as they're stated versus the rhetoric and the, uh, you know, the um, approach to, to Europe. It's a huge irony. And, you know, in fact, the time really is now to be sitting down with the EU. I say that because European Union has evolved very dramatically, even on, you know, when I was at Post, but subsequently, um, toward, a, 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 in a direction which is more uh, our bipartisan view of China. You know, uh, the EU has made its anti-dumping rules much tougher recently. I mentioned a few other areas where they've made their rules tougher and they're going to get much more, much more stringent. Um, so a- actually, we are more or less aligned. If you, if you look at the European Commission's white paper on WTO reform uh, and you compare it to some of the things that have been coming out of the USTR, you know, we share a lot of um, concerns about how that organization is, is working. Uh, including how the dispute settlement body is working. Um, I'm convinced that if we sat down, which we haven't really sat down so far, if we sat down with the EU seriously, we could agree on a lot of the very specific proposals that they've put forward. And not only that, I think we could probably make some headway with the Chinese if we work together. Our leverage, our joint leverage is huge. Tony, you make a good point about the way the U.S. and the EU are becoming more like-minded on China. Uh, at the same time, we, we, we hear a lot about um, economic sovereignty as 
President Macron has said about uh, open strategic autonomy, a phrase a number of European commissioners are using, and, and in, in, there's a German angle to that. We saw last year the uh, proposal for a, a kind of industrial policy. Um, is, this, is this tendency to want to assert uh, Europe's uh, economic identity, is that a good thing for, first of all, for the EU itself, but also for the transatlantic relationship and for the U.S. working together with the EU on China or on, on other common challenges? Well, Peter, I, you know, I think the jury is probably still out. You know, we both have seen, um, you know, this debate play out over decades. You know, we saw the Fortress Europe debate play out in the early 90s. It didn't turn out that way. There were a lot of fears. I don't think they were proven correct. I happen to think that uh, much of what's going on is a legitimate uh, desire to increase protection and not necessarily protectionism. Although, although I would certainly agree that there are, as usual, some voices in different member states that go in the direction of protectionism, and that would be misguided. But if you look at the proposals so far on the table, I think their legitimate desire to uh, strengthen Europe's ability to, um, to protect its values uh, and, its, uh, and its market from unfair competition. We already mentioned a few areas. Um, you know, there's this Dutch and French initiative recent, which put, put together the most improbable of bedfellows, if you want. <laughs> this initiative basically says in future free trade agreements, um, there should be more binding measures on uh, labor and environment um, and uh, climate, right? And there's a view that Europe hasn't done a good, good enough job in enforcing its current trade agreements. Um, and uh, that a lot of other things have been discussed, for example, the carb carbon uh, border adjustment mechanism. Uh, the view is that if other countries are not playing ball, if not pulling their weight under the Paris Climate Change Accord, well, uh, they, uh, they should, uh, there should be a measure to impose some kind of a tax at the border. Um, and the view is if you don't do that, industries will simply migrate as they have to places where the regulations are lower. You know, there's a long list of things like that. If you ask me, those are legitimate aspirations, right, uh, in this world. I think the EU, Europe has been naive uh, in this game of global trade. Uh, and they're becoming less naive. My sincere hope, though, is that this desire for protection doesn't morph into protectionism and you know, building of national champions. Uh, picking up on, on the trade issue, we, there were reports today that um, the U.S. Trade Representative uh, Robert Lighthizer has uh, sort of uh, already decided that perhaps it's, we're not going to have a U.S.-EU trade agreement, and we saw that the European Trade Commissioners seemed to confirm that kind of notion. Um, when, we when the U.S. and the EU negotiated uh, the Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership, which you talk a lot about in, in your book, Stars with Stripes, there was, there was opposition in Germany. People got onto the street. Do you think that, if not now, with, when we have a future administration of whatever uh, stripe it might be, uh, we could be more optimistic about a U.S.-EU trade negotiation unfolding in a more productive way? Well, you're, you're so right. Germany was ground zero of the opposition to TTIP, which caught a lot of us by surprise. But to be fair, Germany wasn't alone. You know, there was Luxembourg and Austria, and then 
the, the skepticism spread, it metastasized, if you will, across Europe, including the UK. And that's another discussion about why, but the, the view was this, it was a very ambitious agreement that was gonna somehow undermine um, the way of life in, in, in Europe and food standards and so forth. Um, the short answer is, um, you know, I'm optimistic about some sort of a deal, but it's not gonna look anything like the TTIP deal. Um, you know, then Vice President Joe Biden loved, loved to say that if you're gonna get uh, crucified, you might as well be crucified on a big cross. And that was the thinking, right? If you're, if you're gonna do this, you might as well go big. And the, and, and the reason to go big is you can kind of uh, uh, you know, barter one issue against another. Um, I, I think those days are over though, particularly in a COVID you know, world, we're still gonna be living in a COVID world for a while. People are feeling even more um, you know, vulnerable. Uh, their jobs have been lost. Uh, and the natural human reaction at time of crisis is to you know, pull up the drawbridge, if you will, right? Um, and our reaction was, uh, you know, uh, bring back supply chains or shorten supply chains, regionalize supply chains. So free trade is going to have a really tough time to, uh, we're going to have a hard time to justify, to push further trade liberalization. But I'm optimistic in the sense that there is a deal to be done um, in different areas. Um, I happen to think that we should and can uh, get a deal done quickly to eliminate tariffs on industrial goods trade. Um, and that would be economically meaningful. And a lot of studies have shown that it would promote exports uh, dramatically and then create jobs, which is relevant in COVID world. But we can't just do that, right? Because Congress quite legitimately says we also need to see movement on agriculture. Um, but it's going to be in a different way from what we saw in TTIP for a whole bunch of reasons. We are not going to force Europeans to change their eating habits, right? Or, or to drop their, uh, frankly, unscientific in many cases, unscientific views about uh, things from chlorinated chicken to you know, uh, uh, issues like hormone-treated beef and so forth. Um, I, I think we just have to accept reality. However, we're gonna need to see movement from the Europeans on issues that are a real concern to us. And there's a long list of sanitary and phytosanitary provisions that, that form real obstacles to our ability to sell to Europe. So we're gonna need to see movement on that. I think we can see movement on non-safety auto regulations, which is you know, economically meaningful. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see us settle the Boeing Airbus dispute, and I'd like to see us sit down on, on WTO reform. So anyway, there's an agenda there, Peter, but it's not going to be TTIP. Yeah. Um, uh, Tony, I wanted to come back to uh, an issue that you devote some, uh, some time to in your, in your book, and, and that is the question of sanctions, and in particular, um, Russia. You know, the European Union has, has become um, or became over the last decade or so increasingly a partner for the United States in its effort to use sanctions to, to achieve foreign policy ends. Um, one was the uh, getting Iran to the table for the Iran nuclear negotiations, which, which really only happened once the United States and Europe had a harmonized approach um, to, to sanctions, but also in particular Russia following the um, uh, illegal annexation of Crimea and the Russian invasion of Eastern Ukraine. And, and what I'd like to get into a little bit is um, you know, the, the, the interplay between national governments and the European Union level, because the, uh, on the one hand, there are a number of EU member states that are deeply unhappy with the Russia sanctions, or at least they say they are. Um, they say they are quite frequently. You hear this certainly from Hungary, 
Um, you hear it, uh, uh, heard it often from the previous Greek government uh, under Tsipras, and you hear it from sometimes from the Czechs, the Slovaks, uh, a lot of voices in Germany are also critical of the Russia sanctions. And even though they have to be renewed every six months, and a lot of American diplomats get really worried every six months about whether this is the, the time when uh, they'll fail to be prolonged, they still do. Um, and I think that has something to do with the leadership of people like uh, Chancellor Merkel, um, who has had a very uh, direct uh, engagement on, on the, uh, the situation in Ukraine. Uh, but I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that interplay between key national leaders um, and the European Union and the European Commission works um, in a diplomatic context and how you tried to approach that uh, as ambassador or the lessons that might have for us today. Well, you're so right. So uh, this is one of the areas that is um, uh, unsung successes, one of the un unsung successes of US-EU cooperation, namely sanctions, both Russia and in Iran. And I think I cite in my book the um, saying, um, this is Zulu saying, I believe, if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. It's so true in this case, because now we have administration says, well, we want to go fast, we go alone. But if you want to go far, you need to work with your best partners, the European Union. And as you rightly say, without the European Union, we would not have today um, the effect of sanctions against Russia for so many reasons. Uh, in, in Iran, it was also the case that it was the e, you know, EU that was a major buyer of, Europe, of uh, Iranian uh, petroleum. Uh, and Europe is a, big, um, is a big customer for Russia as well, not only in gas, but otherwise. So um, working with the EU is absolutely uh, essential. It was absolutely important for us to work with uh, the member state leaders um, uh, on sanctions because, you know, the European Commission had many different um, considerations to balance one against another. Some countries were more exposed to uh, the sanctions than others. And one of the things that the European Commission did is to identify those countries and to try to make them a whole. Uh, economically, I remember Polish and Poland had a big issue with um, with apples. Um, uh, they lost their agricultural markets to Russia, and um, there were some financial measures the European Commission was able to put into place to um, to to uh, to make that you know to, to make the uh, burden less significant. Um, Merkel played an important role, absolutely, on sanctions uh, by showing great leadership. Um, but you're right, a couple of countries were um, particularly exposed, like, uh, like Italy, and we didn't want to lose their export markets, and we had to um, stiffen their spine and uh, put significant pressure on them as well. And also, by the way, uh, demonstrate to them that uh, the United States was taking significant um, uh, risks as well at the, at the same time, and that our own exporters were, uh, particularly in oil and gas, were assuming a significant burden. So we had a multidimensional uh, chess game going on uh, with the EU institutions, the member states, uh, and with our companies. And, and beyond that, uh, beyond that, uh, Canada, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and other countries as well, all of whom had to be more or less aligned. So to put it, uh, you know, to put it maybe a little bit provocatively, is the lesson of sanctions that what really matters in the European Union is to get you know, Merkel and, well, now Macron, uh, on board um, and force it through if there's an important political priority? Or is that, uh, does that go too far? 
it goes a little bit too far because um, even on sanctions um, and and migration would be the two uh, examples. You know, there there was some bitterness uh, about the perception that Germany was calling the shots. Uh, sometimes this is a little bit unfair, but uh, it's the reality. From uh, Matteo Renzi, you know, in Italy, who was saying that uh, there was some hypocrisy because of Nord Stream going ahead and on the other side, uh, the blocking of projects that were important for Italy and the loss of some projects that any was involved in, uh, the Italian uh, National Oil Company. Um, and, you know, Renzi was saying, well, you know, Germany calls for solidarity when it's good for it, but uh, you know, um, doesn't call for solidarity when it benefits um, from things like, uh, you know, these projects that it wants. So, uh, inevitably, when the most important country in Europe is, um, is, is calling the shots, there are going to be some countries that are unhappy with it. I, I think the coalitions have to be much broader, uh, much broader than just one country. And we managed to do that in both of those sanctions. Tony, uh, we're conducting this conversation while the world is still struggling with uh, the COVID-19 virus. Uh, and one of the things that's... Um, happened is that there has been a greater uh, resort to the virtual economy uh, in order to conduct business and, and also personal relations. Uh, how do you, and, and some of that could persist, uh, that, that uh, strengthening of, of the virtual economy. How do you see the future of US-EU uh, relations when it comes to data privacy and the digital economy. Again, Germany has an important role here, has very, for very, a lot of particular historical and cultural reasons, very strong uh, kind of national sense about, about privacy. Uh, do you see that the United States and the EU can uh, come together on these issues uh, to enable the, the, the virtual economy and the broader digital economy, or do you think there are some irreconcilable differences? Well, that's tough to tell. We may find out in a couple of weeks whether uh, we're back into the difficult situation that we faced uh, when I was in office with um, Safe Harbor, and now it's with Privacy Shield, the successor agreement. And that's because the European Court of Justice is about to rule on the successor agreement. Uh, you know, we made a lot of progress um, in difficult circumstances to try to show to um, the European institutions, uh, including the court, that our systems are similar in effect, although different in the way they're constructed. We have kind of a mosaic system of federal, state uh, laws and, and various you know, corporate rules that have been put into place over the years that we think protect privacy very well, and also the, you know, the protections in the US Constitution. Um, but we don't have an, yet an omnibus um, you know, protections for um, privacy as, as Europe does and now in GDPR. Things are evolving very fast. When GDPR was uh, put forward and then eventually approved, there was a lot of criticism from the United States that um, it was overreaching. Uh, but fast forward a few years, one, one company after another, particularly our large digital companies, have endorsed GDPR as the gold standard um, and uh, a standard that we should adopt in the United States through federal legislation and a standard that uh, should be rolled out across the world. Uh, and that's just one example where actually the EU, I would argue, has been a trailblazer. Um, 
So it, it's difficult to say whether uh, we have, you know, made significant progress or whether we still have some you know, points uh, of real contention, including on government surveillance. Um, we're not alone. Um, some European member states as well have uh, faced uh, significant scrutiny from uh, the EU courts about their own uh, government surveillance practices, including the UK and France and some other countries. Um, you know, on the digital economy, we had some differences of view, um, which you know, we lobbied you know, significantly, but it was very difficult for me to do this, Peter, because we often had companies on either side of the debate uh, we had complainants and we had defendants. Uh, and often we had American companies going to Brussels because they thought it was a better place to uh, be heard than in the United States. And certainly in the last three years, we've had administration that has basically withdrawn from taking a leadership position on a lot of these difficult copyright issues, competition issues, um, and even the regulation of uh, hate speech and terrorist content online, where the EU arguably in all three areas, has been uh, the leader. So as I describe in my book, we, you know, we had differences of view. We have a lot of our large companies who are in the crosshairs of uh, the EU uh, authorities. But uh, I conclude in my chapter, this is not about anti-Americanism. Um, uh, and in some cases, we are, we are more and more adopting the EU view on some of these topics. One other aspect of uh, the the pandemic is the really uh, phenomenal uh, amount of uh, resources both the U.S. and the EU have devoted to, uh, you know, financial and economic to managing the crisis and trying to uh, eventually kickstart a recovery. And part of that has been uh, what I think, you know, you could fairly say is a renewed dynamism in the Franco-German relationship. They've proposed a recovery plan, which has uh, in great, to a great degree, informed what the European um, Union more broadly is is uh, is thinking of doing. Um, in your book, you talk a lot about Brexit uh, and the challenge that poses to the EU. Do you think what we're seeing now between France and Germany gives some uh, reason for optimism that even after the UK leaves, uh, that the kind of political dynamic inside the EU? Uh, will be strong and also one that works in the U.S. interest? I think we've seen a lot of movement for sure. And I think some of it's due to this COVID crisis. Um, some of it was percolating beforehand in Germany. Um, you recall when many of these ideas of great reform were presented by Macron, well, they, they, they were met with some um, diffidence, skepticism, I think it'd be fair to say in Germany. Um, uh, but because of this crisis, I think there's been significant movement, particularly on, on the, you know, uh, the role of, um, of the commission in terms of raising debt uh, in, in the capital markets. Um, there's been some greater movement to the concept of uh, mutualization uh, of debt, even though we're not yet at the, at the point of uh, issuing corona bonds. Um, I think this crisis has really raised the stakes and focused minds uh, in Germany about the consequences potentially of the project falling apart. Um, and Germany, I would argue, is the biggest beneficiary of this project. It's not alone. There are other countries that are major beneficiaries, but I think Merkel has understood the, 
the historic burden on her shoulders um, and that Germany needs to step up and take his, you know, historic decisions that will move away um, from, you know, the accepted um, views of the past to uh, allowing the EU to take on roles that were inconceivable in the past, uh, including in the financial markets. So, I am hopeful that the two can exercise a joint leadership of the EU of the 27 going forward. Um, Tony, I wanted to come back to um, something you you referred to um, when you were talking um, about the objections that uh, former Italian Prime Minister Renzi had uh, toward German policy. Um, and it gets at the bigger issue of, of Germany's weight within the European Union uh, and what that means for for the EU as a whole, but also in particular for its for its neighbors and its partners. Um, you know, Germany sees itself as multilateralist. Indeed, the foreign minister has branded an initiative, the Alliance of Multilateralists, uh, attempting to promote that and capitalize on it. So it's part of Germany's self-image. But you know, we all see that times when Germany acts. In a somewhat unilateral way, North Stream Two is uh, perhaps the the best example. So there's a there's a tension uh, between uh, the traditional interests of a nation state and um, and the uh, rhetoric about uh, multilateralism. Um, at the same time, Germans are sensitive to their perceptions in the rest of Europe in in many cases. Um, sometimes maybe too sensitive. Um, I find, for example, um, you know, I often hear from Germans that uh, they are worried about increasing their defense spending because their European neighbors wouldn't like it if Germany was the, um, had the biggest defense budget in Europe, um, for example. Now, that's an, that's an objection I only hear from Germans. I don't really hear it much from the Dutch or the French or the Italians, uh, the uh, Hungarians, the Czechs, the Poles, or anyone. Um, but I'd be interested in your perspective on this question of Germany's weight and influence, um, which at times is seen as too large, um, or at other times it seems that they're not exerting leadership. Um, how do you look at that? You know, I think uh, most Europeans actually would welcome greater German leadership. In fact, uh, you know, the former um, Polish Foreign Minister Radek Sikorski used to say, Poland welcomes more German leadership. Well, maybe not this government under, under this Polish government, but uh, certainly under his regime. You know, who would have thought that, you know, uh, the Polish government would say something like that? I think uh, many European countries would say the same thing. There is no alternative, um, really, not even France um, is not, I think, capable of exercising the same kind of influence and leadership as Germany does. And, and I say this also about Italy, a country I know very well. Um, Italy has a certainly a very important role in the EU, but can't play at that, that top table, uh, nor does Spain, despite all of its great contributions to European integration. So uh, it, it has to be Germany, um, not just because of its economic strength, but because of the importance of uh, you know, it's 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 a stable uh, democracy. It's a quality leadership under Merkel and, and beforehand. Um, so I think it's a good thing for Europe. Um, I my only wish is that Germany would, you know, German leaders would explain to their publics more effectively what is in it, what's in for European uh, integration for them. 
Too often we see in Germany, the view is that Germany is simply writing the checks and others are benefiting and, and Germany isn't. But I think actually, um, as I said before, it's the number one beneficiary. So Germany's doing this actually, uh, not just for altruistic purposes, but for yeah, its own self-interest. Well, I think that is a, a great place um, for us to wrap up. Um, you know, the European Union, I, I think uh, through the measures that have been taken uh, to respond to the pandemic, especially the, the um, uh, financial and, and fiscal measures, is becoming a stronger actor. Um, and it will be a key fixture um, in America's interaction with the world. Um, there's no two ways around it. Uh, and it's one that we need to understand better. So, uh, Ambassador Tony Gardner, you've brought us um, forward uh, today in that understanding. And I want to thank you uh, for sharing your time and your thoughts with us. Um, and, uh, and we look, look forward to keeping in touch. Uh, and certainly to all of our listeners out there, we look forward to having you with us um, on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören!